0: A-N-D-R-E-V-I-E-W dot com. Please like
1: and share our podcast and give us any constructive feedback.
2: From the National. Friday the 11th of September 2022. From the Politics Section. Glasgow City Council to induce warm banks for freezing Scots this winter. By Craig mayn Glasgow will establish warm banks this winter after councillors voted unanimously to implement the measure across the city. The Scottish Greens said their motion will save lives ahead of the potentially deadly winter with thousands likely to go cold due to skyrocketing energy prices. Warm banks, similar to food banks, but for people to fuel property will see public spaces used for residents unable to heat their homes during the colder months. Glasgow City Council will be instructed to set up a network that includes its own buildings and those of arms-length bodies such as Glasgow Life, with local politicians saying it could also include buildings from faith communities and the third sector. The council said it will look for suitable sites for warm banks in the coming weeks. Scottish Green Councillor for Blair Anderson said, the measures was needed as the cost of living crisis turns into a humanitarian disaster. He said, During the summer heat waves, I had constituents telling me that they were scared to use fans for the fear of the bills. Extreme weather is becoming the norm. And if there's a cold snap, there's a real chance that people will become severely unwell or even freeze to death this winter. Every level of government needs to be doing what they can to stop the crisis from escalating even further and to save lives this winter. That's why we proposed warm banks and why Greens in government are freezing rents, banning evictions and putting billions into the cost of living relief anderson urged the uk government to undo the planned hikes in energy prices he said i'm sick of having to spend so much time and money mitigating the impacts of a government who doesn't care whether the most vulnerable in our society live or die we can't accept warm banks as just another feature of our failed social security system like we've seen with food banks over the past decade of austerity but in the face of inaction at westminster i'm glad that Following today's vote, Glasgow will play our part to keeping people warm and safe in this winter. SNP Councillor Rory Kelly said urgent action is needed as the many Scots struggle to pay their energy bills. He said, It is a sad indictment of failed energy policy in the UK that we are having to talk about providing warm places for people to spend the day because the cost of energy is becoming too unaffordable for too many of our citizens. We have a responsibility in the government to respond to this crisis. So now and in the weeks ahead, we're mapping the services and facilities available and working with third sector partners to identify accessible buildings which can provide additional warm places this winter. These will be buildings which are well known to communities. It's important, though, that this is also about providing a space where people can come and socialize and be offered access to financial inclusion, support and social activities. The magnitude of this requires intimacy and the intention would have to be availably publicised and open by early October through to March. But with the recognition that more of the places may become available as other partners join, what will need to be Team Glasgow effort? There have been increasing calls for warm banks across Scotland, with the National revealing last month that a dozen local authorities were planning such measures. A Savanta Cosres pool at the end of August before the latest price rises shows that 69% of people will be using their heating less this winter and a further 23% of people will be planning not to put their heating on at all this winter. It comes after Prime Minister Liz Truss has said that a typical household will pay no more than £2,500 per year for their energy below the predicted energy price cap rise. It is major intervention from the UK government and is expected to cost around £150 billion to be funded by borrowing. The new £2,500 still amount to rise of £529 but is lower than predicted October increases, which was predicted to see bills soar by more than 80%. And that article was by Craig Mayhague from The National. Friday the 11th of September 2022. From the news section, NHS Highland apologises for confusion over COVID letter mix-up by Anita Bahadni. Residents in Alness, Invergarden and Wick who were invited to attend COVID vaccination clinics in the wrong area this week have been issued an apology from NHS Highland People were originally offered COVID vaccination appointments far away from their places of residence. NHS Highland confirmed it was simply due to error and that all impacted people would be offered an appointment closer to their homes. Apologising for the confusion and anxiety caused, they added, We are very sorry about the stress that this caused some residents. We are operating a new booking and appointment system. And as with any new way of working, there can occasionally be teething issues as the program is rolled out. Our teams work very hard behind the scenes to minimize any disruption this may cause. But we are sorry that on this occasion appointments have been allocated in error. We will be contacting those affected by this directly to offer them a change of appointment. Mary Todd S. Marie Todd, SMP, MSP for Caithness, Sutherland and Ross said in a statement posted to her Facebook page on Friday that she welcomed NHS Highland's swift action to rectify the error. She said, I would urge anyone who has received an appointment in the wrong location, has not yet been contacted by NHS Highland to contact the Service Delivery Centre helpline to book an appointment in your area. NHS Highland Service Delivery Centre helpline can be t- contacted on 339. Scotland's winter vaccination programme began on Monday, September 5th, with more than 2 million people across Scotland to be offered appointments over the next three months. More than 41,000 frontline health and social care workers have been booked appointments through the portal since it last opened. Health Secretary Hamza Yousaf Said, vaccination remains the best way to protect yourselves, your loved ones, and the NHS from both COVID 19 and flu viruses. And I encourage you to take up the offer of a booster when you receive your appointment. And this article was by Anita Buhadi from The National, Friday, the 11th of September 2022. From The News section, Scotland ranks high against UK areas in terms of productivity by Abby Garton Crosby. Scotland has ranked amongst the most productive nations and regions in the UK in a news report. Accountancy group PWC produced a UK economic outlook analysis looking at several different areas across the UK. The report states, however, that Scotland is still below the national average when it comes to productivity, but came in third behind London and the southeast of England. According to PwC, growth in Scotland will sit around 0.5% points behind the UK average before heading into a year of slow and potential negative growth. How severe this will be dependent on energy prices, how inflation soars, and the amount of government support which will be made available to households and businesses. Scotland came third in productivity rankings in the report at £39 per hour of work, but this was still 2% points behind the UK average. It comes as the accountancy firm warned that workers across the UK are facing an average £2,000 cut in real terms from wages by the end of the year as inflation hits double digits. Jason Morris, the regional market leader for PwC in Scotland, said businesses and consumers face a very difficult situation as inflation heads towards a five-decade high. Morris added that this could lead to the largest fall in real wages since records began. He said, with average income levels sitting below the national average and due to the fact that the lower income households tend to see a higher budget share on fuel and food, there's a real risk that households in Scotland could feel the impact more keenly. The PwC set out a number of scenarios for the months ahead, including a mild winter. In the event that we see recovery in Russian gas exports, gas prices dropping back to the levels seen at the start of the summer start of September, and considerable government support in response to the cost of living crisis, then it could see Scotland report growth of 3.1% for the whole of 2022. However, if Russian export and gas prices stay at the current elevated level, mitigating the impact of any government support, then under the harsh winter scenario, growth will only hit 2.6%. Bringing in a freeze on household energy bills could could keep inflation between a peak level of 10% and 13%, the accountancy group said. Without a freeze, inflation is forecast to top 17% in the first half of next year, they added. Morris added, Until the gas market regains stability, predictions on the inflation outlook will remain difficult. It presents a challenging environment for businesses to plan, mitigate and adapt. And this article was by Abbey Garton-Crosby.
0: This article is from The National, date 9th September 2022, from the Culture section. Tom Devine among academics calling for Thomas Muir's historic home to be A-listed by Craig Meachan. Tom Devine is among a list of academics and politicians putting their names to an open letter calling for Thomas Muir's Historic Family Home to be awarded Category A listed status. The letter to Historic Environment Scotland HES, sent by the Friends of Thomas Muir Group calls for the status of Hunters Hill House to be upgraded, something the organisers say would give the body more power to protect the 18th century Laird's house. An application to East Dumbartonshire Council proposes the Bishop Briggs site to be divided into four plots, with three detached houses along with the renovation of Hunter's Hill House. Divine's signature is joined by 123 other people, including literature professor Gerald Carruthers, law professor Lindsay Farmer, former MMSP and lawyer Brian Fitzpatrick, Tory MSP, Pam Gozel, and SNP MP, Tommy Shepherd. Muir was an advocate who was born in Glasgow in 1765. His campaigning for freedom of speech and democracy saw him convicted of sedition and sentenced to 14 years' transportation to a penal colony in Australia as one of the Scottish political martyrs. With his advocacy of political reform and the people's freedoms, Muir was lionised in post-revolutionary France, but died there in 1799 at the age of just 33 from wounds sustained during his long escape journey from Australia. The letter said it would be a travesty for the setting to be diminished and lost for present and future generations, adding... That the character and setting of the building has remained unchanged for more than 250 years. It reads, Hunter's Hill House lies in a special category because of its unique association with former resident Thomas Muir, the father of Scottish democracy, which elevates Hunter's Hill House and grounds to a place of special historic interest locally nationally and internationally. Category A listing would further protect Hunter's Hill House from overdevelopment and subdivision of the grounds in ways that would have a detrimental impact on its character and setting. Devine, one of Scotland's foremost historians, said Muir was one of Scotland's greatest sons and a leading advocate of political reform in the 18th century. He told The National Muir paid a grievous penalty for his courage and principles by being sentenced to transportation to Botany Bay by a reactionary political and legal establishment. Muir is therefore rightly seen today as a national hero and a forerunner of our democracy today. Jimmy Watson, chair of the Friends of Tom Muir Group said, The building must be protected due to its national significance. He told the National, the current Category B listing confirms it as a building of regional importance. However, national and international interest in Thomas Muir of Hunters Hill suggests an upgrade to Category A listing would be appropriate. The support we have received from academics, politicians, lawyers, and members of the general public for our open letter confirms that there are many other people of the same view as ourselves. SNP MP Shepherd backed the letter, saying, The proposals to convert Hunter's Hill House into apartments can only be described as an act of historical and architectural vandalism. There are few buildings more relevant to our political history than Hunter's Hill House, the home of the father of Scottish democracy, he said. National columnist and signatory, Leslie Riddoch said Scotland has far more castles, palaces and mansions than places that celebrate our long, proud democratic tradition. That's why it's worth kicking up a fuss over plans to develop and essentially dismantle Hunters Hill. If the developers can't find a way to keep the whole building intact, I hope they'll not stand in the way of an alternative community plan. Brian Gray, who owns the property, said the building should not get Category A listing, adding that it does not have international significance. He said he rejected the argument that his plans for the site would amount to historical and cultural vandalism. Gray added that his current proposals would maintain the house's original style. He said the building is a wreck. It's four walls and a roof, he said, adding that his plans would restore the property which has been left to rot. Anne Davy, chief. Deputy Chief Executive Easton Bartonshire Council said The council's planning service is considering a planning application for the conversion and refurbishment of Hunter's Hill House. The application was submitted to the council on April 4th and is still pending decision. Should the planning service be minded to approve the application, it would require to be presented to members of the council planning board for a final decision. A spokesperson for HES said, We were asked this summer to review the listing of Hunter's Hill House and to consider whether it should be changed to Category A. We are currently looking at the case, which is available to see on our portal. We have received the open letter and will look closely at the arguments it makes in favour of a change of category. That article was by Craig Meachan. This article is from The National, date 12 September 2022, from the Culture section. Bronze Age Pot to go on display in Kirkoddy, 40 years after discovery by Adam Robertson A Bronze Age food vessel discovered during demolition work 42 years ago has gone on display at a nearby museum following conservation work. The 5,000-year-old pot was among a number of objects unearthed, along with human remains, during work on Kirkcaldy High Street in June 1980. Work to demolish a shop and hotel was forced to stop when a bulldozer driver caught sight of some partially buried bones. Three burial kists, or ancient coffins, emerged of the subsequent dig, two of which held human remains, while the other contained the food vessel, a flint arrowhead and a flint knife. The vessel was added to the collection at Kirkcaldy Museum and Art Gallery and has recently undergone conservation work after curators noticed the item item had become unstable. It has now gone on display again in the Kirkcaldy Galleries for the first time since 2011 when it was part of an exhibition called Changing Places. Jane Friel, a curator with cultural charity On Fife, which manages the Kirkcaldy Collections on behalf of Fife Council, said, We are thrilled the visitors can now see this magnificent object for themselves as it offers a fascinating glimpse into Kirkcaldy's distant past. When it was first found, the patterned clay vessel, which is 165 millimetres in diameter and 160 millimetres high, was in several pieces and had to be reconstructed by University of Glasgow archeologists at the time. The recent work, was carried out by specialists at the Scottish Conservation Studio in Edinburgh who preserved and safeguarded the vessel using a reversible adhesive that allows the pot to be dismantled again if required. The pot has been partially filled as only 75% of the original vessel survived. The filled material was then painted a different shade from the original pot so visitors can tell where the additions have been made. The work was funded by Friends of Kirkcaldy Galleries. A grant from Historic Environment Support Fund means post-excavation analysis of the other objects found at the site, including the human remains, is able to go ahead. Following an initial appraisal in April, the artefacts have been transferred to a laboratory at the University of Glasgow where analysis will take place. Marta Innes, who is part of the University of Glasgow archaeology team said, it is a rare privilege to re-analyse an ancient object so many years after its discovery. We are hopeful this will help us better understand the prehistoric life in the local area. That article was by Adam Robertson. This article is from The National, date 12th September 2022, from the Politics section. Scotland's food and drink is on the brink amid energy crisis. By Ruth Watson, founder of the Keep Scotland the Brand campaign. Scotland Food and Drink has launched its annual celebration of the sector, Scottish Food and Drink Fortnight, which this year has the theme of Scotland's stories to savour. Food and drink is one of the largest industry sectors in Scotland. It has a £15 billion turnover, an increase of 36% since 2007 and employs 119,000 people, nearly 5% of employment in Scotland. Ian Stirling is the co-owner of Arbicate Distillery, which has a breathtaking perspective across London Bay near Montrose, and the famous Red Castle, battered by centuries of North Sea storms. Ian comes from a family which has been part of the community for 400 years. Their determination to grow sustainably is impressive. Using only ingredients grown on our farms gives us our field to bottle ethos. And by harnessing our creativity and collaborating with academia, we have created the world's first climate positive gin and vodka, Ian says, proud of the work they are doing to integrate environmentalism into their processes. We are innovating for the future as well as learning from the past. It's really important that we do that as sustainably as possible. We export internationally because we live in a global world. But a shorter supply chain is more reliable. It cuts carbon miles. No business can ignore the climate emergency. Companies around the world are looking for environmentally friendly products because that is what consumers expect. Look at the flooding in Pakistan and the forest fires and droughts across Europe this summer. People realise we can't wait to take action. Scottish Food and Drink Fortnight provides us with a great opportunity to tell our sustainable story and celebrate Scottish provenance and we are delighted to get involved once again this year. Scottish Food and Drink, led by the energetic and inspirational James Withers for the last 11 years, has a new hand at the helm, Ian Baxter, a former senior executive in the whisky industry. He's been announced as the new chief executive. He takes over just as the impact of the cost of living crisis risks hurling businesses into the maelstrom. While enterprises with a strong export market, such as Arbyke Distillery, are well-placed to weather the storm, many hospitality outlets serving predominantly local markets are in real trouble. Brexit has hit their ability to recruit enough staff. The cost of food is spiralling and soaring energy bills could see mass closures of businesses across the country. Sarah Heward founded the Real Food Café in Tindrum, a lovely wee spot on an unassuming but important intersection between the west and east of Scotland. A welcome pit stop for wayfarers and a beautiful destination in its own right. Open from early until late, the café provides delicious, hearty meals with amazing views. Sarah is Scotland Food and Drinks Regional Food Tourism Ambassador for the area. She said, Staffing is a nightmare. There just aren't the staff to keep hospitality outlets open. We haven't been able to open key parts of our business, even though we are so busy. And one of the reasons we're so busy is because so many other places now are closed. Brexit has been a disaster. It's not only the problem, but it underpins every aspect of the issues we are facing. Food costs are rocketing. The price of fish has gone up 50%, rapeseed oil is up 15%, and our monthly electricity bill has gone up from £2,300 to £5,900. Our overheads keep going up and our ability to make revenue is being cut. Fish and chip shops, once a place where folk could pop out for an affordable family treat, are one example of a sector being hit hard. Sarah is part of a social media group in which more than 3,500 chip shops represented. The stories people are sharing are grim, she says. It's heartbreaking. People face losing their livelihoods, their homes. These are businesses which often employ whole families, give youngsters in the area their first start at work. If they close, it's not just jobs that go, it's like a beating heart that gets torn out of a community. In 2020, the equivalent of 97.4% of Scotland's gross electricity consumption was from renewable sources. Many of the island and rural businesses being hit the hardest by escalating fuel bills are in the same areas as the wind farms which keep the lights on across the whole of the UK. While there is much to savour in Scotland's food and drink success, the clamour of despair and the threat to the sector as businesses face skyrocketing energy bills cannot be ignored. Scotland has the power Perhaps it's time we used it. That article was by Ruth Watson. Ruth Watson is the founder of the Keep Scotland the Brand campaign. This article is from The National. Date 12th September 2022. From the Politics section. We must see through the myth-making over the Queen's shady legacy, by Steph Payton. The United Kingdom already felt like a surrealist right-wing nightmare, even before Liz Truss became Prime Minister, and the Queen died in the same week. But now it's like living in a country going through poppy season on steroids. Listening to the rolling non-stop news of the passing of Britain's monarch at the age of 96 you would think it nigh impossible to even get to the shops without pressing through the wailing and gnashing of teeth of four nations in fierce mourning. But the reality is, in looking out my window, the world looks broadly the same as it did the day before she died. The decomposing mattress on my street corner is exactly as it was a week ago. Liz Truss still doesn't know when to pause when delivering a speech, and people are still terrified about how they'll pay their heating bills this winter. A collective madness claws at the heart of the British state, and we're all expected to play our part whether we like it or not. And while some call for restraint during this period of enforced solemnity, I believe this is in fact the most crucial time to flood the media with criticism, difficult facts and, yes, tasteless mockery of Elizabeth's reign. The British media are laser-focused on a single perspective of the monarch's time on the throne to the exclusion of all others. That of a long-serving monarch who did her duty faithfully and with dignity, and whose accomplishments are an inspiration to us all, though trying to pin anyone down on what those accomplishments actually are, is a challenge I have yet to see anyone truly rise to. The cancellation of the football card appears to have been born not from a well-meaning but misguided desire to show respect, but reportedly over concerns that fans wouldn't play the assigned role of dutiful serf during stadium tributes to the late queen. Televised dissent in the stands would break the illusion of a nation on the constant brink of tears over a woman they never met. The United Kingdom being portrayed on television and in print is one I think that most of us would struggle to recognize. Keir Starmer's comments that the Queen didn't reign over us but lived alongside us is such a bizarre reframing of the relationship between the public and a millionaire monarch with a history of cha- changing the law to suit her personal interests. Corporations and institutions lined up to post tributes between, between, beneath hastily recoloured black and white variations of their logos including Pizza Express, who honestly should have considered sitting this one out. The feverish, breathless coverage of the death of the Queen led even otherwise sensible journalists to make some absolute clangers in service to the dominant narrative. The BBC came under fire after one journalist described the energy crisis, a national catastrophe in the making, as... Insignificant now, given the gravity of the situation at Balmoral. Sky News mistook a march through London over the murder of Chris Caba, an unarmed black man who died at the hands of the Metropolitan Police for an impromptu funeral march in honor of the Queen. And when commentators did finally find a reason out with unquestioning fealty as to justify why the nation was supposedly mourning so, it was usually in the form of comfort in her constant presence over the decades. This isn't a period of mourning, it's a period of myth making. And if we wait until the Royalists decide on our behalf that a sufficient amount of time has passed to begin critiquing the royal family again, we will find ourselves facing a barred door that cannot be reopened. The impact of Elizabeth's reign on countries around the world that faced the brutal violence of Britain's colonialism has been entirely excluded from her legacy, replaced with a sanitised image of a kindly matriarch, whose actions were largely benign and whose expensive jewel collection came from places unknown that it was best not to ask about. There's a reason that every image of mourners outside Buckingham Palace and elsewhere shows almost exclusively white faces. So no, I won't play this little game that we're all expected to. I want the Queen to be remembered as the monarch who tried to use a state poverty fund... heat her palace. The Queen who secured exemptions in equalities law so that Buckingham Palace could legally block people of colour from working there. The Queen who gave shelter to and financially supported Prince Andrew while he fought allegations of sexual abuse. She was the parasite in chief in her idiot hat to quote actor Christopher Eccleston. So While the Daily Mail plays the role of bootlicker and publishes stories of the Queen's head being spotted in the clouds shortly after her passing, I'll remain critical of her legacy and of the exemptions her family wrangled to ensure that the new king could inherit the entirety of his mother's wealth without paying a penny in inheritance tax. And importantly too, I'll keep making jokes that it was Paddington Bear that got her in the end. That article was by Steph Peyton
3: From the National Tuesday the 13th of September 2022 from the news section exclusive Our Republic Meets Global Headlines After Edinburgh Anti-Monarchy Protest Arrest by Xander Eliards After one of their members was arrested for an anti-monarchy protest in Edinburgh the international media has been queuing up to speak to the Scottish campaign group Our Republic. Among the UK media, however, there has been almost complete radio silence. That silence comes despite voices from across the political spectrum condemning the arrest of the anti-monarchy protester outside St. Edinburgh, St Giles Cathedral on Sunday. Broadcaster Andrew Marr said the police action was outrageous. Labour MP Zara Sultana said it was extraordinary and shocking. While Tory peer and avowed Brexiteer Dan Hannan said officers shutting down Republican protests was utterly un British. Tristan Gray, the convener of the anti monarchy campaign group Our Republic, told The National that he had been answering requests from outlets such as NBC in the US and Der Spiegel in Germany in the wake of the arrest. However, other than The National, no domestic media had gotten in touch. That's why he thought this was the case, Gray said. To the international media, it's just a normal story. They're treating it like a normal story. They're behaving like journalists. Our media, for some reason, have lost that journalistic integrity when it comes to the monarchy. And I think that should shock people. Gray suggested that the monarchy was exerting a controlling influence in media in the UK, including on outlets which would normally look for an anti-establishment angle. He told the National outlets you would expect to really swing for the anti-establishment angle, at least to some degree, the kind of outlets you would expect to be clamouring for that kind of thing. They did for Kenmure Street for example, where a spontaneous protest in 2021 forced the Home Office to end the detention of two Sikh men. There's been an almost complete radio silence from them. They're reporting so-and-so got arrested and afterwards it's just five quotes from people expressing their disgust at the protester, but nothing from anyone saying This is an attack on freedom of speech, this is an attack on freedom of protest, the kind of things these exact papers were shouting about last year when the police and crime bill was advancing at Westminster. For some reason, the moment the monarchy is involved, they're only promoting the voices which are calling for that freedom of speech to be shut down. I think that is quite shocking and it shows the influence of the monarchy as a controlling force, as a force of the establishment to keep people's opinions in line and reduce the legitimacy of movements that are lobbying for change. Police Scotland said they had arrested a 22-year-old woman who had been protesting the monarchy in connection with a breach of the peace on Sunday, September 11th. On Monday, a spokesperson added, she was charged and was released on an undertaking to appear at Edinburgh Sheriff Court at a later date. And that article was by Xander Eliards. From the National, Tuesday, the 13th of September, 2022, in the news section, Rich households to receive twice as much cost of living support, says Think Tank, by Adam Robertson. Rich households will receive twice as much support to help with the cost of living than poorer ones, a think tank has said. The Resolution Foundation said if the government cuts national insurance and limits energy bill rises, richer homes will get £4,700 in 2023, compared to £2,200 for the poorest. once trust announced last week she would cap the average energy bills at £2,500 until 2024. The scheme could cost the Prime Minister up to £150 billion, although trust has refused to put a figure on it saying extraordinary times call for extraordinary measures. Under the government's energy price guarantee, suppliers are limited in the amount they can charge for each unit of energy. For a typical household, one that uses 12,000 kilowatt-hours of gas a year and 2,900 kilowatt-hours of electricity a year, it means we'll pay an average of £2,500 on our energy bill for the next two years. Prior to the intervention, Ofgem had announced that the price cap was going to soar to more than £3,500 compared to £1,277 last winter. Chief Executive of the Resolution Foundation, Torsten Bell, said the government support was colossal and bold, although warned families should still expect a tough winter ahead, with rich households getting twice as much of the cost of living support as poorer households next year. Bell added, The energy price guarantee was absolutely the right thing to do in terms of providing support where it is needed. The think tank said that the near-universalist intervention fitted with previous support offered in the form of £150 council tax rebate and a £400 energy bill discount. It added that targeted help had also been provided for lower-income households through the benefit system, but said tax cuts benefiting the richest half of households meant the total support package of government support now in place to support incomes in 2022-23 2020 provides no more support to poorer and richer households. Director of the Institute for Fiscal Studies, IFS, Paul Johnson, as previously described, the support package is very poorly targeted. He said, Finding a way of targeting support to the many, many millions who really need it without giving it to the many, many millions who don't appears to be something that has stumped the Treasury and the government for finding a mechanism of achieving that. The state intervention is set to be funded by government borrowing as trust rejected calls to extend a windfall tax on gas and oil company profits Despite calls from the Labour Party, the Lib Dems, and SNP to do so. A windfall tax is a one off tax imposed by a government or company designed to target films that have benefited from something they were not responsible for. Bell said that by ruling out any attempt to fund the government's new support through further windfall taxes, the welcome support today could have a nasty sting in terms of higher mortgage payments and higher taxes tomorrow. A mini budget outlining how the government intends to pay for measures to tackle the cost of living crisis is set to take place this month. The Department of Business could not offer a comment due to the period of national mourning. And that article was by Adam Robertson from the National, Tuesday the thirteenth of September, twenty twenty-two, from the news section, exclusive, Syrian law student Violet Hijazi. Wants Her Dying Father to Come to Scotland? By Greg Russell. A former refugee from Syria who fled to Scotland almost 10 years ago has launched a petition to allow her dying father to come to Scotland so they can be reunited before it is too late. Violet Hijazi says her father, Ali, has been in hiding in various places since they left their home in northern Syria when it was ravaged by civil war. She lost her mother and has set off on a series of dangerous journeys to get to safe Scotland at the age of 16. Now she is studying for a law degree at Stirling University, despite the worries about her father, who is now 73 and has had a series of strokes, and her stepmother, who are in Kurdistan, Iraq. As a refugee here, she applied to be reunited with her father and stepmother, but they lost contact when her family were under siege in their home and village of al Jazzy says, while working on my college dissertation in 2020, I read a case about a family reunion whereby the judge had criticised the home office family reunion rules, making it possible to apply for other family members. I was aware that it was a risk, but at least we could bring it before a judge. More importantly, the home office family reunion policy says in black and white that if you do not meet the immigration rules, They can still grant the application outside of them if compassionate factors can be shown. My father is dying. I thought that in itself would be enough. She says her father has suffered three strokes since the first visa application last November, which have left him unable to walk or talk properly. However, the Home Office said that since they were able to provide medical reports, it showed her father was receiving the health care he needs. After many attempts by my MP, and an article in the National about her struggle, they refused father's application in July 2022, but not my stepmother's yet, said Hijazi. I have not seen my father in over 10 years. He survived the war in Syria, but he's very unwell. The doctor said he's got a limited time to live, and I fear the worst. Hijazi says she's been told it is not in the public interest for her father to be allowed to come here, but adds, I am fluent in English. I have fully integrated and I am doing a law degree at the University of Stirling. I won the CDN Student of the Year award in 2021. I do not receive benefits and I have contributed to Scotland in so many ways. How could it be in the public interest to refuse my father? Her lawyer, Osman Aslam, says the home office family reunion policy clearly sets out that beyond family life there can be compassionate factors that may result in a grant of an entry clearance visa. I have lost count of the number of times I had cases less strong granted first time round, says Aslam from Mukhtar solicitors in Glasgow. The issue here is that this elderly man may not make it until any future appeal. What does this tell us about the thinking behind the decision makers when a city national who is integrated in Scotland, won awards at college for best student, is studying law, has become fluent in English, and works for a living, cannot see her father before the inevitable happens? The rules are not fit for purpose. We'll look forward to try to achieve a positive outcome for this daughter and father. A Home Office spokesperson said, all visa applications are carefully considered on their individual merits in accordance with the immigration rules. Violet Hagesi's petition can be found online at change.org and an article was by Greg Russell. From the National, Tuesday the 13th of September, 2022, from the news section, Top EU Negotiator Offers to Reduce Checks at Border, by Gregor Young. The EU's chief negotiator on Brexit has suggested that physical checks on goods travelling across the IDC could be cut to a couple of lorries a day. Maros Sefcovic said the union stands ready to work in an open and constructive way with Britain, following a statement from the new Prime Minister on the prospect of a negotiated settlement under Northern Ireland Protocol. It comes as the UK and EU have been embroiled in a row over Britain's proposals to override parts of the controversial post-Brexit treaty, as it seeks to reduce trade barriers with the region. Last Wednesday, Liz Troy said her preferences for a negotiated solution to the dispute. But she said such a resolution would have to deliver all of the things we set out in the Northern Ireland Protocol Bill, which is currently making its way through Parliament. The legislation would allow Minister to unilaterally scrap the arrangements the UK signed up to as part of the Brexit Withdrawal Agreement. In an interview with the Financial Times, Sefcovic said he was encouraged by Truss's recent remarks. We stand ready to work in an open, constructive and intensive way, he said. Sefcovic argued that the trade border would be invisible under the EU's plans, with goods processed remotely while making their way to Northern Ireland as long as the UK provides real-time data on their movements. He suggested physical checks would typically only be made for a couple of lorries a day when there is reasonable suspicion of illegal trade smuggling, illegal drugs or dangerous toys or poisoned food. The treaty is designed to prevent a hard border on the island of Ireland after Brexit but it has proved deeply unpopular with unionists because it has introduced new trade barriers in the Irish Sea. It has sparked a power-sharing crisis at Stormont, with the DUP withdrawing from the executive in protest. DUP leader Sir Geoffrey Donaldson told the FT, renewed negotiations would likely require a change of stance from the EU. They need to recognise that, if we are to arrive at a solution, it requires them to accept and respect the integrity of the UK, its internal market and Northern Ireland's place within it, he said. Irish Taoiseach Michael Martin said last week that a pathway to resolving the issues with the arrangement can be found if there is a will and that his government will work with Britain and the EU to do the practical and sensible thing. He said a strong partnership between the two governments is vital to underpin the Good Friday Agreement and support peace and prosperity on the islands. And that article was by Gregor Young.
1: reported from The National on the 13th of September 2022 from the culture section, recorded by Amy. Scotland to play host to Take One Action Film Festival by Ninian Wilson. Scotland is set to host a leading film festival that will shed light on global societal, social justice and how land is used to oppress international communities. The 15th edition of the Take One Action Film Festival will be held across four major cities, with weekends in Edinburgh, September 16th to 18th, Glasgow, September 23rd to 25th, Aberdeen, October 21st to 23rd, and Inverness, October 28th to 30th, with special screenings on Tyree, September 17th, and Loch September 24th as well. This year's theme is The Land Beneath Our Feet, and we'll chart connections between Scotland and other international communities, while also highlighting how land is used as a stage for violence and resistance. The festival will include features on UK migrant justice, Palestinian foraging practices and Filipino land defence. Organisers say the lineup invites audiences to unearth networks of solidarity across all kinds of borders and envision our embeddedness within them. Highlights of the festival are set to include Sunita Gill's documentary Hostel, which explores the impacts of then Home Secretary Theresa May's hostile environments policy and the Scottish Premier of Jumana Manas Foragers, which explores how Israel criminalised foraging native plants in occupied Palestine. Lazy Crook, Take One Action, event and communities officer said, Take One Action was set up in 2008 to bring people together and nurture the conversations and questions at the heart of positive social change. At a time when the notions of solidarity, equality and justice seem increasingly under threat, it feels more vital than ever to find connection and unearth optimism through shared cinematic experiences. This year's programme explores terrains of hostility and oppression, spotlighting bold stories of resistance and inviting us to come together in uprooting systems of injustice to make space for planting seeds of community, dynamism and hope. All tickets are available on a pay what you can basis, whether in person or online. Across all venues zero to ten pounds. More details can be found here. That article was by Ninian Wilson. Recorded from the National on the thirteenth of september twenty twenty two from the culture section, recorded by Amy, UK Cinemas Due to Close or Screen Queen's Funeral on Monday by Ninian Wilson. Many of the UK cinemas will close on the day of the Queen's State Funeral, while others will remain open to screen the event for free, they have said. Major chains including Cineworld, Odeon and Showcase will shut their sites on September 19th in a mark of respect. Other cinema chains including View, Curzon and Arc, have chosen to screen the funeral for free, while cancelling the rest of their programming that day. ARK said in a statement on Twitter, we have decided to screen Her Majesty the Queen's State Funeral on Bank Holiday Monday 19th of September at 11am. This is a free event but pre-booking your seat is essential. There will be no other shows taking place while the funeral is broadcast. The UK release of romantic comedy Ticket to Paradise starring Hollywood A-listers George Clooney and Julia Roberts has also been pushed back from September 16th until September 20th, the day after the funeral. Tuesday also marks the end of the of the period of national mourning. Public museums, galleries and other art and culture venues are not obliged to close during this time, although some have. Government guidance says, Organisations may choose to close on the day of the state funeral, however there is no obligation to do so. And this is at the discretion of individual organisations. As with other organisations, these institutions may wish to display or share images of previous royal visits, particularly if they... Are one of Her Majesty's patronages. Phil Clapp, Chief Executive of the UK Cinema Association, said, While we have shared with our members official guidance which suggests there is no requirement to close, clearly all UK cinema operators are sensitive to the public mood and responding accordingly at what is a very sad time for many across the country. Clapp said his current understanding was that 150 UK sites planned to screen the funeral. It comes as historic and heritage sites such as Stonehenge, HMS Belfast and Hadrian's Wall all announce plans to close on the day of the Queen's funeral. Retailers Morrison, Marks and Spencer's Lidl and Asda have also said they will shut. Schools and nurseries will also be shut across Scotland on the day of the funeral, while other funerals originally set for Monday have been cancelled. That article was by Ninian Wilson.
4: The National News. On Wednesday, the 14th of September. Community hub in Glasgow's East End targeted every day by vandals. An article written by Sarah Hilly. Residents in the East End of Glasgow have said they're too frightened to report antisocial behaviour where a community centre is being vandalised. The Bridgeton Community Learning Campus is currently undergoing improvement works but is being targeted every day by vandals. A meeting has heard. Labour councillor Cecilia O'Lone said residents in the Reed Vale area had seen cars smashed and asked for information on how residents could be supported. Calling for more CCTV in the area as antisocial behaviour is constant, housing representative Margaret Storey told the Calton Area Partnership meeting, people are frightened, they're scared to tell the police because their lives could be in danger. East Local Area Commander Greg Robertson said that sometimes incidents are not reported because of a confidence issue or because people are fearful of repercussions. Mr Robertson urged Ms Olone to contact the police with issues on people's behalf if they don't want to report a crime themselves. He added, knowing about it is the best thing. Labour councillor George Redmond said, What we have to understand is the police can't do this on their own. We need to try and provide as much support as we can. Mr. Redmond added that some probably don't see the police as a threat on their own. SNP councillor Linda Pike has said residents know who the young people causing problems are, but that nobody is willing to say who they are. Leslie Ward of the Third Sector Forum said, Vandalism is happening on a daily basis at the Bridgeton Community Learning Campus. As you're aware, there's a new green space development going on in the Old Dalmarnock Road area, It's looking amazing, but on a daily basis it's getting vandalised. Ms Ward said a new gate was kicked down the day after it was created, that there's evidence of drug use and graffiti, and that fires are being lit. She added, It seems to me there's an awful lot of money being spent and it's just ongoing. It's being destroyed as it's being developed. Police Sergeant Bobby Fisher said there are hopes to introduce diversionary tactics to keep youths busy on Friday and Saturday evenings when disorder mostly happens in the Bridgeton area. He said the police are working on the problems at the Bridgeton Community Learning Centre, but there's a struggle to gain hard evidence. An article written by Sarah Hilly. The National News on Wednesday the 14th of September. Financial Challenges Sees Highlands and Islands Airports Scale Back Modernisation Plans An article written by Adam Robertson. Highlands and Islands Airports Limited, or HIAL, has announced that it will have to scale back on its air traffic modernisation plans due to financial challenges. The state-owned regional airports operator has previously abandoned a proposal to centralise the service for some of its airports. It had been working on a new modernisation plan, but has now said there's not enough funding available. Hayal is discussing the situation with Transport Scotland. Chairwoman Lorna Jack said, Our overriding focus is to deliver safe, reliable and sustainable aviation services for the communities we serve. Like many other businesses, Hyal must reappraise priorities and spending options and make difficult decisions based on the extraordinary circumstances we're all facing as global economic pressures impact our day-to-day activities and our future plans. Hyal runs a total of 11 airports across Scotland, in the Highlands, Argyll, Western Isles and Northern Isles, as well as Dundee Airport. In January, it dropped plans to centralise some of its air control operations. Controllers at Dundee, Inverness, Kirkwall, Stornoway and Sunborough were to be relocated to a new hub. The prospect union opposed the move, as it said it would have put nearly 50 jobs at risk. Hayal said the plan no longer formed part of its proposed modernisation of air traffic control. A separate plan to downgrade air traffic services for Bembecula and Wick John Groat's airports are also to be reviewed. An article written by Adam Robertson. The National News on Wednesday, the 14th of September. Inflation dips to 9.9% as petrol prices fall. An article written by Laura Pollock. The UK's inflation rate has fallen slightly, but prices are still continuing to rise at nearly their fastest rate in 40 years. Inflation fell to 9.9% in the 12 months to August, from 10.1% in July. The consensus across think tanks and economic networks is that this was entirely driven by falling transport costs, as the prices of food and clothing continue to accelerate upwards. Petrol prices fell by 14.3 pence per litre between July and August, while diesel prices also fell. The groups pointed to the current lack of detail and misdirection in interventions attempting to address the cost of living crisis in households, Alex Veach, British Chamber of Commerce's Director of Policy and Public Affairs, says that while the inflation rate had eased slightly, this was driven by a fall in motor fuel costs, while the price of other goods continued to rise. He said there's a limit to how long any firm can sustain these rising costs before something has to give. We know from our research that two-thirds of businesses plan to increase their own prices. The size of last week's government intervention on energy prices should have a dampening effect on inflation when it's enacted. But the lack of detail on exactly how much help any individual business will get and for how long means very few will be planning to invest any time soon. Mr Veach said the mini-budget expected to be announced by Chancellor Kwasi Kwarteng later this month must show businesses there's a cohesive plan to take the economy forward. Prime Minister Liz Truss has already announced that she will cap energy prices at £2,500, after Ofgem previously said it would soar to over £3,500. Dr George Dibb from the Institute for Public Policy Research think tank said the inflation figure falling because of lower petrol prices is welcome, but it risks obscuring that the cost-of-living crisis continues to hit everyday goods. Dr Dibb said, many people will welcome the consumer price index inflation easing slightly this month, falling from 10.1% to 9.9%, including the Bank of England, who is deciding whether to raise interest rates next week. However, this headline figure has been pulled down by falling petrol prices, and it hides worrying news that the prices of food and clothing are continuing to accelerate upwards. High inflation means high prices, and without intervention, this will lead to more hardship, more poverty, and more destitution. The government's price cap on energy for households and business is a welcome step, but it won't instantly reduce the inflation in essentials such as food and clothing that we see today. The Resolution Foundation think tank, which focuses on living standards, said inflation weighed more heavily on poorer households and to provide long-term detail to interventions, the UK government should start looking towards 2023. Jack Leslie, senior economist at the Resolution Foundation, said the energy price guarantee should prevent a second winter surge in prices while factory gate inflation is starting to ease. However, high inflation is set to be with us for some time, particularly for those on low incomes who continue to be hit hardest by high prices. The government will need to consider what support will be needed next year, too. A mini budget outlining how the government intends to pay for measures to tackle the cost of living crisis is set to take place this month. An article written by Laura Pollock. The National News on Wednesday, the 14th of September. Mothers urge government to do more on the cost of living. An exclusive article written by Craig Meegan. Two single mothers have issued an urgent call for more help after warning the UK government's current cost of living crisis doesn't even touch the sides. The two Scots said it was already a struggle to get by each day before the cost of living crisis. Gillian Lynch from Port Glasgow is on employment support allowance as well as the personal independence payment. She has two children, five-year-old Aria and two-year-old Scott, who has Down syndrome. She told The National that each week it just seems to get worse, saying it's becoming increasingly difficult to budget as inflation soars. My main worry is keeping my children warm, she said. It brings my stress and anxiety levels to a very high level. It's going to be a massive struggle for my family. Ms Lynch feels there's not enough help for single mothers like her, She has recently moved in with her 69-year-old father. Caring for him as well as her two children, she said, is an everyday struggle, as she stresses about paying her bills and getting enough food. Asked what she wants to see from the Scottish and UK governments, she said, more money. Everything is rising. There's just no living with the money we're getting. I got myself into extra debt because I can't pay my bills. And then before I know it, I have another debt on top of that and I can't pay it. We also need more support for single parents. She added that many of those in power don't understand the real struggles of those dealing with financial insecurity and poverty. If they were to come into our house and live in our house for a week, they wouldn't be able to do it, she said. They wouldn't be able to live the life that we live. Every day is a struggle, and we have to pick ourselves up for the sake of our children and trying to get on the best we can and give the children the best we can give them with the availability we've got and with the cash we've got. So I don't think they understand exactly how it is for parents. On top of rising energy bills, Miss Lynch has seen her weekly shop soar in price. Her weekly food cost used to run at £200 a week, but is now reaching £300. Taylor Cameron is in a similar boat. She's a 23-year-old single mother from Greenock with two children. She's on Universal Credit, which saw the extra £20 per week added during the Covid crisis scrapped last October. At the time, charities warned it would send hundreds of thousands of children into poverty. The cut happened when I was just about to give birth to my first daughter, she told The National. I don't have any family that could help. I just had to scrimp and scrape. I was looking after my grandad at the time, but with that cut, to universal credit, I couldn't even top up the metre. There were times when the house was cold and we didn't put on the heating, we just wore extra jumpers. Miss Cameron is worried about how she'll be able to afford to bathe her kids every day, as rising power bills make everything from washing machines to showering much more expensive. To save money, she often keeps her curtains closed to trap in heat, while wearing extra jumpers and restricting when she turns on the heating. Energy prices rose in April by 54%, to an average of £1,971 a year for a household. And they're set to rise in October again, with Prime Minister Liz Truss announcing on Thursday she'll cap bills at £2,500 but Ms Cameron is already struggling to get by. My energy shot up to just over £400. I ended up in debt because of it. I just couldn't afford it. The £400 is basically my shopping for the month. On top of the physical aspects of financial insecurity, there's the mental factor, and Ms Cameron is feeling the full weight of the stress that goes along with worrying how the next energy bill will be paid. I don't think you can overstate the fact that children are only we for a short time, she said, and for their parents to constantly be in a state of being stressed or feeling anxious through their childhood is just so unfair. For the support that's currently there, Miss Cameron said it won't even touch the sides. Regardless, though, Miss Lynch said her kids will always come first. I would rather suffer and not have anything than have my kids suffer. I always make sure my children get something. Both parents are involved with the Home Start scheme, which aims to offer emotional and practical support for friendship. More information can be found at www.home-start.org.uk An exclusive article written by Craig Megan. The National. Politics. On Wednesday the 14th of September. Cross-party fears raised over arrests of Republicans. An article written by Abbey Garten Crosby. Concerns over the arrests of anti-monarchy protesters have been raised by politicians from numerous Scottish parties. There have been multiple instances in Edinburgh where those voicing anti-royal sentiments have been charged under breach of the peace at events including the proclamation of King Charles III and as the Queen's funeral procession made its way down the Royal Mile. SNP MPs Joanna Cherry, KC and Amy Callaghan spoke out against the arrests, while Scottish Greens MSP Maggie Chapman and Scottish Labour MSP Carol Mochen have pledged to raise the issue in Holyrood when it reconvenes. Ms Cherry, the SNP's former justice and home affairs spokesperson in Westminster, said, I'm concerned by reports in Scotland and England of seemingly legitimate protesters being arrested. While many might question whether this is the appropriate time for such protests, the right to protest is fundamental to our democracy and should be facilitated. Ms Callaghan, SNP MP for Eastern Bartonshire, said on Monday night, Republican views are as valid as any other. No one should be arrested for just expressing that. Ms Chapman, MSP for the North East, said that she would raise the issue with the Justice Department and Secretary Keith Brown. She said on Twitter, Recent actions by Police Scotland arresting those protesting against imperialism and the monarchy are deeply concerning. Free speech underpins any democracy. Peaceful protest must be protected. I'll be taking this up with Keith Brown as soon as possible. Solidarity with those affected. Ms Mochen, Scottish Labour MSP for the South of Scotland, added, I share the concerns of many regarding reports people have been arrested for expressing their views in support of a republic. Everyone has the right to express their opinions peacefully. This sets a dangerous precedent. I'll be raising my concerns when Parliament reconvenes. Murdo Fraser, MSP for Mid-Scotland and Fife, is the only Tory MSP to have commented on the arrests of protesters. He said, I'm a strong believer in free speech and the right of a peaceful protest, but the notion that anyone helps their cause by shouting abuse at mourners in a funeral procession is absurd. Meanwhile, former Scottish Tory MSP Adam Tompkins said Anyone choosing this moment to protest by placard against the monarchy in crowds of mourners is insensitive to the point of boneheaded crassness. But they should not be arrested for expressing their views unless their words incite violence. Obviously. David Davis, English Tory MP and former Brexit minister, said that he'd written to Police Scotland's Chief Constable Ian Livingstone over the issue. He wrote... It's not for me to interfere in the judicial process. However, with the accession of our new monarch, I'd hope the police would protect the rights to free speech. He also added, if the individual was simply stating an opinion, I trust you agree that a liberal approach would be desirable. Naomi Macauliffe of Amnesty International said, "It's incredibly important that at all times, even those of national mourning, that the rights to freedom of expression and peaceful protest are upheld." No one should be arrested for peacefully expressing their opinion. Protest can be annoying or even upsetting to some, but it's absolutely essential for a rights-respecting society. It comes as a former counter-terror chief criticised the police response to the protest. Nick Aldworth, the National Coordinator for UK counter-terrorism policing until 2019, said that there was an inappropriate overprotectiveness to events surrounding the Queen's death. He added, The nature of police and the military is we all swear an oath of allegiance and I think sometimes we forget that part of allegiance is upholding what the Crown would want. I met the Queen on countless occasions across my career and the one thing I'm pretty certain about was that she was an advocate of democracy and she would not want that level of disruption and interference with legitimate protest. They didn't act appropriately. It's overzealous. It's overzealous. On Sunday, two arrests for breach of the peace were made during the proclamation of King Charles III on the Royal Mile in Edinburgh. One woman, who was later charged, was reportedly standing in silence, holding a sign which read, F with three stars, Imperialism, abolish the monarchy. A police source said she had been arrested in relation to her behaviour and not for displaying the banner. A 74-year-old man was later arrested in the vicinity of the Palace of Holyrood House. He was also charged with breach of the peace. On Monday, a 22-year-old man was arrested and later charged after shouting abuse at Prince Andrew while the Queen's funeral cortege made its way along the Royal Mile. It also emerged that a man in Aberdeen was arrested after he was allegedly seen carrying eggs as the Queen's funeral cortege passed him on Sunday while it was making its way from Balmoral to Edinburgh. Elsewhere, a barrister who held a blank piece of paper in London was told that if he had written, not my king, he would have been arrested. Other protesters criticising the monarchy have been arrested in London and Oxford. Gina Miller, who challenged the UK government over Brexit in the courts, said of the arrests in England Today's overzealous police actions and arrests outside Parliament Square are worrying. We live in a country where free speech is cherished and should be protected, even with the new Police and Courts Act. How can a blank sign, for example, be a problem? An article written by Abby Garton Crosby. The National Politics on Wednesday, the 14th of September. The Queen's death is being used to obscure the UK government's failing response to the energy crisis. An article written by Abby Garton Crosby. The shambolic approach to tackling the ongoing energy crisis by the UK government has completely fallen under the radar due to the death of the Queen. With multi-millionaire Jacob Rees-Mogg now taking on the energy crisis as the business secretary and after months of silence over the summer as the Tory leadership contest rumbled on, the public and media were eagerly demanding action just days ago. Yet, when the policy was finally announced, it fell flat. It was wall-to-wall coverage of the royal family, and it still hasn't relented. In a 51-second clip uploaded to Twitter just after 4pm on Thursday, when the UK was awaiting the news on the health status of the Queen, Mr Rees-Mogg proclaimed that the UK government will extract every ounce of oil and gas from the North Sea and bring back fracking. This statement was accompanied by calming background music, as Mr Rees-Mogg touted an energy price guarantee for consumers, which is still double what they would be paying at the same time last year. And the green schemes mentioned in Mr Rees-Mogg's clip don't get any detail. There's little mention of renewables, and instead stock footage of an offshore wind farm has been used. Let's look at the price cap specifically, as the Tories have consistently ruled out any help for households. In February 2021, the price cap was set at £1,138, but by August the same year it had hit £1,277. Over the summer, we had numerous predictions of how far it was likely to go, with the last prediction for October putting bills at a whopping £3,549. If we take August 2021 as the base, that's an increase of £2,272 for the average household. Newly appointed Prime Minister Liz Truss and Mr Rees-Mogg's price guarantee reduces the annual amount to £2,500 for the next two years. The UK government press release boasts that this saves consumers £1,000 a year, but this is based solely on Ofgem's prediction of the price cap rising to over £3,500. The £2,500 cap is still £1,223 more than the price cap was in August 2021, and that is £54 short of doubling household bills. There is, of course, the £400 energy discount for each household brought in by former Chancellor Rishi Sunak, but even with this factored in, consumers in a typical home face an extra £823 a year. It should also be noted that this payment is going to each household, meaning those with a second home will get a cash boost for each property. Whatever way the UK government is trying to spin this, that's not a saving by any means. And how did they fund this? Partially by pausing the green levy on energy bills, as Miss Trust promised in her election campaign, to the detriment of schemes intending to bring down carbon emissions. Further details of the plan have not been forthcoming due to the mourning period for the late monarch. But what is arguably more concerning, particularly for environmental campaigners, is the continued enthusiasm for maximum economic recovery from North Sea resources. This is despite repeated warnings from the United Nations that to avert global warming, no new fossil fuel sites should be brought online. As well as the red herring of a £1,000 saving, Mr Rees-Mogg also suggested that extracting more oil and gas will provide energy security and move reliance away from Russian-owned supplies. The UK government said it's making a historic intervention after a failure to invest in homegrown energy. The Tories have been in power for over 12 years. It also further highlights a gulf between the energy policy directions of the UK and the Scottish governments. In Scotland, the ruling SNP is against nuclear power, focusing on renewables and the just transition for oil and gas workers. In Westminster, more nuclear power stations are being pushed and Mr Rees-Mogg is about to open a licensing round for a potential 100 extra production sites in the North Sea. Jackdaw, a huge gas field off the coast of Aberdeen, was given the go-ahead in March this year, but likely won't be operational until at least 2025. These are matters of serious concern as we head into the winter and the extended period of pomp and mourning for the Queen could not have come at a worse time. An article written by Abbey Garton-Crosby. The National Politics on Wednesday the 14th of September. Yestival on eve of Queen's funeral to be postponed. An article written by Abbey Garton-Crosby. A pro-independence festival due to take place in Glasgow on the day before the Queen's funeral has been postponed, allegedly due to public order concerns. The Yestival event was planned to commemorate the 8th anniversary of the independence referendum, which falls on Sunday, September 18th. The monarch's funeral is due to take place in London the next day. It comes after concerns were raised following a number of anti-monarchy protesters being charged with breach of the peace during a proclamation ceremony in Edinburgh announcing King Charles III as the new monarch. Hope Over Fear and former socialist MSP Tommy Sheridan are among the organisers for the George Square event, with the Proclaimers backing the festival. However, organisers say they've been forced to reschedule the event for October eighth after discussions with Glasgow City Council. It's understood that permission for the event had not yet officially been granted and the application was withdrawn. Our sister paper, The Herald, reports that the Yestival Organising Committee said in a circular to supporters that police concerns over public order and staffing levels led to the event being postponed. The National has approached Police Scotland for comment. Yestival organisers announced the news to supporters, writing Like many independence campaigners, we're disappointed that we can't assemble on the historically significant date of the 18th of September, eight years exactly since our first referendum. But we're going to assemble on October the 8th, only three days before the Supreme Court in London meets to deliberate over the Scottish Government request for legal permission to hold India Ref 2 on October the 19th next year. It's an ideal opportunity for the independence movement all across Scotland to come together with one voice and declare loud and clear that no unelected judges or unrepresentative Tories in Westminster have the right to deny Scotland her basic human right to vote on her constitutional future after the Principal Party of Independence in Scotland has won convincingly five consecutive general elections, three UK general elections and two Scottish general elections since our first referendum in 2014. It comes after an online fundraiser for the event only raised £430 through GoFundMe, but organisers say the costs for the event amount to nearly £4,000. This includes a mobile stage, a generator, PA system, safety barriers, insurance, van hire and other associated costs. The circular two supporters added, so let's turn a negative into a positive. We're not assembling on Sunday, but we will assemble on Saturday, October 8th to declare for Scotland's freedom to choose her own destiny. Gather on that day and be entertained by the galaxy of talented independence musicians and inspired by speeches from across the independence movement. We have our date with destiny. It's October 19th, 2023. Demand the right to vote on that day for a new, fairer, more democratic and nuclear weapon-free Scotland no longer held back by the corrupt and rotten Westminster chains of exploitation and domination. A spokesperson for Glasgow City Council said, following constructive discussions with the organiser, they took the decision to postpone their event and amended their application to a later date. An article written by Abby Garton-Crosby.
1: Recorded from The National on the 14th of September 2022 from the Culture section, recorded by Amy. Queen Elizabeth's funeral destined to be biggest TV event in history by Xander Eliards. The funeral of Queen Elizabeth is expected to become the most watched event in television history, attracting billions of viewers across the globe. As many as 4.1 billion people are expected to tune in to see the monarch be laid to rest on Monday, September 19th. The new king, Charles III, has declared that the day will be a bank holiday and stores across the UK have said they will shut to allow staff to pay their respects to the late queen. The BBC and ITV will both be broadcasting the funeral on terrestrial and digital services, with technology helping more people to watch than ever before. Carolina Beltramo, a TV analyst from the website WatchTVAbroad.com, said the widespread coverage would attract billions across the globe to see the dawn of this new age. Beltramo said, such is the love and admiration for the Queen Elizabeth around the world, that her funeral is destined to be the biggest live TV event in history. No fewer than 4.1 billion people are expected to tune in on Monday to witness this historic moment as half the people on planet Earth cause to pay their respects. Thanks to advances in technology, which mean most of us now carry TVs around in our pockets, audience figures will eclipse the opening ceremony of the Atlanta Olympics when 3.6 billion people watched Muhammad Ali light the Olympic torch in 1996. In contrast, an estimated 2.5 billion people watched the service for Diana, Princess of Wales, 25 years ago, with 31 million Brits tuning in. This was then a UK record for a live TV event. The Queen's Casket will be lying in state in Westminster Hall in the Palace of Westminster for five days. Members of the public will be able to view the coffin from Wednesday, September 14th at 5pm until 6.30am on Monday, September 19th. After the lying in state ends, the Queen will be taken to Westminster Abbey and a grand procession for the state funeral. That article is by Xander Eliards. Recorded from The National on the 15th of September 2022 from the Culture Section. Recorded by Amy. Unique St. Mungo Museum reopens its doors for first time since pandemic. By Jane MacLeod. A unique Scottish museum exploring comparative religious life and art has reopened for the first time since the pandemic. Named after Glasgow's patron saint St Mungo Museum of Religious Life and Art in Glasgow closed in March 2020 as the country went into lockdown but has once again opened its doors today welcome any and all visitors. The Rare Museum investigates the significance of religion across the world and throughout human history and is recognised for its role in promoting understanding, respect and dialogue between people of different faiths as well as those of none. It also explores violence, racism and sectarianism, an issue of particular importance in Glasgow's social and cultural history, alongside human rights issues such as those relating to sexuality, education, torture, the law and refugees and the freedom of movement. The museum hosts a wide collection of exhibits, With the Heavenly Creatures, Angels in Faith, History and Popular Culture exhibition currently on display. The museum is set over three floors with displays covering a variety of different aspects of religious life, belief and practice. Among the dozens of artefacts on display, some of the most treasured exhibits include a bronze sculpture of Shiva, one of the most important gods of Hinduism, a stained glass, piece depicting Moses, Elijah, David and Enoch, and the new Scots display in the Scottish Gallery, which explores the lives and objects associated with refugees and asylum seekers who have made Glasgow their home. There is also work by war artist Peter Housen commemorating the 25th anniversary of the Serbrenica massacre in 1995, and outside what is said to be Britain's first garden. Duncan Dornan, Head of Museums and Collections with Glasgow Life Museums, which manages the museum, said, Since St. Mungo Museum opened in 1993, we have worked with the local community to create imaginative displays, groundbreaking educational programs, interfaith dialogue and interesting topical exhibitions. Together, this has established the museum's popularity and reputation as a neutral and safe space for encouraging dialogue and understanding, often of challenging topics. It's wonderful news we are open and ready to welcome the public back to St. Mungo's. Philip Mendelson, Chair of Interfaith Glasgow, said, Interfaith Glasgow is delighted that St. Mungo's Museum is reopening as it's an important resource to the faith communities of Glasgow and the wider community. As a city with many refugees and asylum seekers, sharing the story of many faiths in a city is important in building community cohesion. The importance of St Mungo's extends far beyond the city, as it is one of the few museums of comparative religion in the world and is unique in the UK. We look forward to renewing our partnership working with the wonderful team at the museum, and especially to being able to deliver our ever-popular faith-to-faith events in person again. The museum is open every day from 10am to 5pm, except on Fridays and Sundays when it opens at 11am. The Heavenly Creatures, Angelland's Faith, History and Popular Culture exhibition is now open, although the shop and cafe will remain closed for now. That article was by Jane MacLeod.
0: And that was this week's The National Podcast, normally recorded in our studio at the Bishop Briggs Media Centre, currently recorded from our volunteers'
1: homes with the publisher's kind permission. Thanks for listening.